Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to have a timely conversation on the macro and market environment with our UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as thought leaders from our asset manager partners. Our guests also spend time comparing and debating their asset allocation recommendations, as well as views on the overall market landscape. So joining us for today's conversation, from the UBS Chief Investment Office. Glad to welcome back Jason Dreho. Jason is the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas. From the partner side, very excited to have back with us Jeffrey Sherman of Double Line Capital. Jeffrey is the firm's Deputy Chief Investment Officer and serves as Lead Portfolio Manager for Double Line's multi-sector and derivative-based strategies. Uh, Jason, Jeff, it's great to be back with you both. I know we have a lot to cover during our time today, though at the top, do want to thank you both for spending some time with our listeners as well as our clients of UBS. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, Dan. It's good to be here. Absolutely. So there is much debate across our industry, as our listeners, our clients, I'm sure know, as to whether or not the U.S. economy is in store for a soft or a hard landing. So, Jeff, how do you see the economic landscape here in the U.S. taking shape in the months to come? Yeah, uh, it depends on how many months those are there, Dan. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, currently we're not, we're, you know, we're not really in a deep recession. And I'll call it a recession is that you have to have the depth of some economic drawdown as well as breadth across a lot of sectors or at least spanning the economy. And what's keeping that from being a recession, in my in my viewpoint, is that you know, we still have a robust labor market. Now, we know that labor lags in variables. It's slower to respond or, you know, you get the economic hardship first before the layoffs come. But so far, and again, we have a big day tomorrow with the, the non-farm payrolls report coming out. So far, it doesn't really look like it's being that it's not that broad and robust at this point. So at this stage, I think the Fed has been able to engineer somewhat of a soft landing and they have the potential to do so. But um, if inflation stays stubbornly high, um, which, you know, it is, you know, uh, there is it's not a low probability event of that happening. We could end up in the hard landing scenario. So it's undeniable that growth has slowed. Uh, there are some positive uh, data points within the GDP report. I know we've had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, but during the first quarter, private investment was, was robust. Uh, you also had uh, a strong consumer. Now, unfortunately, the private investment fell off a cliff uh, in the second quarter, uh, but the personal consumption was still there. So uh, I think, you know, this, this all signs whether we go hard or soft isn't really up to the Fed as much, I don't think, as it is to, you know, corporate America keeping people employed, uh, people keeping those jobs and earning a, let's call it a reasonable wage, uh, wage rate. So at this stage, you know, I, I think it's 50-50 whether it's soft or hard. Um, but, you know, for the rest of this year, I'm expected to be more on the soft side. I don't think we technically enter a re- or we don't uh, NBER definition of recession enter it this year. But the likelihood of getting there next year has definitely accelerated significantly in the last three months. Thank you, Jeff, for sharing with us your take. Jason, similar question as far as how you, our UBS Chief Investment Office, believes the U.S. economic landscape will evolve from here, maybe to be a bit more pointed with the time frame over the next 6 to 12 months. 
Well, uh, you know, what Jeff said to regarding, like, you know, kind of soft versus hard instead of 50-50, that is effectively uh, kind of the official uh, UBS or CIO view of between kind of a soft landing versus a recession. Uh, so very much in that camp of over the next six to 12 months, it's uh, yeah, a balancing act between the two. Uh, and, and frankly, things may not feel that much difference between kind of, a, you know, a soft landing and a recession. Um, there's still be kind of economic pain across the board. But I think relative to, you know, a lot of economists and certainly investors who have been very skeptical and concerned, you know, basically almost assume that a recession is inevitable. I think we're a little more optimistic that, you know, one can be a broad based, you know, slowdown can can be avoided. Uh, and some of that comes down to inflation, which we'll get to in a second. But another thing that's interesting about the when you look at the data, there's also almost like a key-shaped recovery that's kind of going on. And, and this is something that was being discussed two years ago in the initial stages of the, the recovery after, like, the pandemic-induced recession. But we're seeing it just in, the, like, consumer behavior and spending, you know, between goods and services is a simple way to think about it. And we saw that in the second quarter GDP numbers where real personal consumption expenditures on services was positive. It was negative on, on goods. And so really what's happened is the economy has continued to sort of normalize to a post-pandemic endemic state of the world. You're seeing sort of a reversion back to pre-pandemic kind of behaviors. I call it like, you know, a normalization. No, what that means, though, is that the massive increase in goods consumption that took place the past couple of years, now we're getting a normalization. But normalization means like what's like almost like a recession, say, for that part of the economy, for the manufacturing part of the economy. But the service is actually holding up reasonably well. And even this week, we saw that with the ISM manufacturing data continue to get worse, whereas just yesterday, the ISM services data actually surprised to the upside. So it, looking at the whole data picture, it is difficult to disentangle what exactly is sort of a normalization process that's going on and sort of the noise around it versus just pure outright deterioration. I mean, there's definitely elements of both, but I think that's when, when I kind of look at the data, I think there's some, some of what is taking place is normalization and it's being sort of viewed perhaps you know, too negatively. Um, and that's kind of, when, as a result, I think that's kind of where we come out in the 50-50 uh, kind of scenarios or the probabilities. Uh, you know, but Jeff, just a couple of follow-up questions for you. I think it was in late June or thereabouts. Uh, I saw, you know, saw that you were at an ETF conference. I don't know which one, but I remember kind of reading some of your comments that were seemed relatively optimistic at the time. Which, when people were very pessimistic about growth, that seemed like, like a bit of an outlier. And in, in, you know, kind of you're kind of preaching to the choir to me, at least to some extent. So I'm just curious if that was you know, the case, and maybe how your thinking you know has evolved even over the past month. As we've seen some of the growth data has gotten, at least some of it gotten a little bit worse. Yeah, it's gotten a little bit worse, but I, I was still focused on labor, and you know, I, I tend to follow unemployment claims, which again are starting to kind of flash a little bit yellow. Um, you know, people use percentages uh, off the lows of the tightness when it comes to unemployment claims, and these are weekly data series, as you know. So they, they tend to be, you know, uh, at least a little more uh, obviously frequent, but uh, you kind of get a little prelude of what's typically coming in, in these non-farm reports. So I still think labor is strong. I've not noted that consumption is strong. And the ISM, as you said, the PMI data, although, you know, they, they, they have gotten a little bit weaker, I remind everyone that these are not magnitude type of, uh, of data prints. They're what we call diffusion series. And what that means is it's like, how many people are responding in a positive versus negative manner. And so, you know, going from like a 58 to a 54, oh, it sounds horrific, you know, but you started to see that, okay, it is getting softer. But, you know, also when I look through now the data too, prices paid coming down, like in a diffusion index, so you can't really, you know, disentangle, is it a significant less price being paid? But you're starting to see this idea 
that the employment side, it's been a little bit weaker uh, on the surveys, but ultimately these prices of goods paid going down, you're seeing like the new orders somewhat stabilized. And so to me, it, it's still a mixed bag, but my comments from the ETF conference were that there's so much negativity out there that, you know, I think everybody's glomming on to, you know, it, it's one of those, that it, this is the most well-telegraphed recession ever. And my point to the, to the audience is that there still are bright spots in the economy and markets are starting to reflect that pricing of the kind of sentiment out there. And so, yes, they got a little bit worse uh, before we've hit these local lows. Um, but what, the way I look at it, too, is that the market today, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about what, what we're looking for in terms of trade ideas, but the markets today are priced for the slowdown. They are not priced, what I'd say, is a, a broad and deep recession. But, you know, this technical recession to a slowdown is reflected in a lot of the credit and equity markets. Now, equities have had a very good rally in the last few weeks as well off the lows. And so um, they're, they're not really reflecting as much of that as it was. But that was my point uh, to my comments to the crowd uh, at that speech was that, you know, there's a, although we know there's a slowdown, we see the data there are positive data points. And by the way, you're starting to get to levels where valuation makes a lot of sense given that slowdown's already priced in. So th- those are my comments, Jason. So you also touched on, on the labor market. And I think this is ultimately a lot of stuff comes down to, you know, the labor market being able to kind of cool but not completely crack because, all, you know, other inflation, goods inflation, I think will will kind of come down. And there's been a debate in the markets, well, actually not so much in the markets, but definitely among some key policymakers. Larry Summers on one side, former Treasury Secretary, very well-known economist, and, and Chris Waller, who's one of the, the governors of the Fed. And kind of the crux of the argument is that the labor market kind of can't cool, wages can't come down enough to bring inflation down to a level that the Fed is comfortable with without a recession, which leads to higher unemployment. And Waller is kind of pushed back to say, well, the labor market is so tight that you could get to some kind of cooling of that back to get the market's labor market back into balance and do so in a way that you know wages will moderate, but you won't get a real contraction of employment. And if you don't get a contraction of employment, you get the soft landing. And so there's sort of two sides of that debate. Uh, you know, how, how do you, I guess, where would you kind of come out on that? And how much do you think that actually is kind of the, the critical factor for whether we would have a soft versus hard landing? Yeah, I, I think it's an important debate, but you have to remember that, you know, th- these people take the view set, the mindset of the Phillips curve, and that is inflation is directly related, or at least it has a, a, a curve shape to it, uh, to the unemployment rate. And so this concept that Wages are high or at a level that the Fed's uncomfortable. You know, uh, the, the next argument out of Fed folks is that, well, that means unemployment has to go up. And so there, there's ways for unemployment to go up a little bit and wages to kind of stagnate at this growth rate even. And so it, it's a function of, you know, the world changed, right? And I, I, I asked the question back to you, Jason, and is, is the inflation we're experiencing today because of wage growth? Or is it more exogenous factors? It's likely both, and I'll let you answer it. But the thing is, is that when we talk about, um, you know, the job growth, I think what they want to see is the jolt data come down and meet with those that are looking for it. So they they want to see more of an equilibrium rate between job openings and people who are looking for work. And there's been a, a very large disconnect between those two. So I think on a positive note, the jolt data, which are the job openings, went down by half a million in the last report, right? So 
that's showing some progress, okay, of potentially closing that gap. And we'll see it in the jobs report. Is it, you know, because jobs got filled? Um, or is it people removing those and just saying, okay, we're going to have to, a little bit of contraction on the employment side? So I could, I could potentially see unemployment going up, let's say, marginally. Say we get to like a 4% rate, and there not being much change in the wage pressure because the jobs that are in demand demand that level of wage growth. So, um, you know, I think it's not popular to say that unemployment and inflation are not inextricably linked. Um, but the Fed believes in the Phillips curve, and therefore that's why, you know, with the high inflation, they think rates will lead to job cuts, which will ultimately drive inflation, I'm sorry, unemployment up, which should curtail inflation. But back to my question back to you is, is this, is this inflation we're experiencing driven by the wage growth, do you think, or is it something else? There's definitely an element of, of other factors, and we know pandemic-related distortions. When inflation first started to rise in, in April and May of last year, at least on a year-over-year basis, you get attributed to higher airfares, hotels, used cars prices, things that were really disrupted and dislocated by the pandemic. So there's definitely still an element of that. And then this year, higher you know, energy prices related to uh, you know the war in Ukraine, higher other commodity prices in general, that's certainly lifted uh, headline CPI inflation. So there's, there's that element. They're separate from the labor market entirely. As inflation has gotten more broad-based, I think that's where you could say, you know, labor market tightness, high wages overall have been sort of a driving factor. So the other noise, I think, ultimately kind of goes away. So it's sort of like, you know, kind of an economics 101. In the short run, you have variable cost and fixed cost, but in the long run, everything is a variable cost. So I think, you know, the transitory argument for inflation is that ultimately everything becomes transitory, except if wages stay kind of elevated. And on that point, it's, you know, I think it we actually published a piece last Friday called like this time is different too. That's kind of follow up on something we did earlier, specifically looking at the labor market to see like, well, what would typically happen in past recessions? And at least for the past four of them, uh, that were, you know, the economy is sort of most similar it is today. You have a rise in unemployment, then inflation falls. And so it would suggest that you need, you know, unemployment to go up, the labor market to cool. That's the only way to bring inflation down. What's unique this time is that the labor market by various measures has never been this tight before, like in any kind of post World War II era. Uh, you also have demographic trends that are working against it. I mean, the labor force participation is going to decline because we're an aging population. So there's an argument that's been sort of floated around very recently of the kind of labor hoarding. You know, companies will cut job openings, but after two years of struggling to rebuild workforces, they're going to be reluctant to let people go. So these arguments would suggest that you can get a an equilibrium of sort of kind of getting supply and demand back into equilibrium, and that would bring kind of wages down to a certain level. That, you know, would have let you avoid a recession without a big increase in unemployment. But that would be different. That would be something we haven't really experienced in recent years. You know, but the conditions are so unique that's possible. The one counter I'd say to that is, and this is kind of a paradox, is that if the labor market is so tight and that basically puts a plateau or a floor on an inflation, then the Fed almost has to hike even more aggressively to bring inflation down. So it's like, you know, kind of good economic news could be bad for the economy because then the Fed says, well, we just have to keep going. Uh, and that would be bad for the markets. You know, I think we're, we're in sort of uncharted territory here. So I think anyone who says definitively it's going to be one or the other, I think we have to, you know, kind of take with the grain of salt. Um, and that's a good wide. You know, I would be in the camp of like, you know, this has got to be sort of almost like a 50-50 coin toss because we really don't have a good precedent to, to evaluate any of these things. Right. And I mean, you know, from the folks I speak with, you know, and, and we speak to a lot of corporate leaders, it's like, you know, look, there's a hiring freeze in corporate America right now. It's not stated. Um, you know, the, the people don't want to communicate, especially if you're a public company, because then people are worried that there's some, some uh, deterioration in your underlying fundamental business. And so 
what you're seeing is that it's changing some of that behavior. And so potentially, you know, that's the way we get through it is where some of those job openings come down, we get closer to equilibrium. And then over, you know, the next couple of years, you get those wages to equilibrate. And so, um, you know, I, I'm with you here that there's a lot of uncertainty, which means you've got to be open-minded. You've got to be able to listen to both sides of the argument at this point, And you need to position portfolios to be able to, you know, weather one side or the other as well. Uh, Jeff, just running a bit further with what Jason brought up a few moments ago with respect to further Fed rate hikes. I know we're coming off a second consecutive 75 basis points hike just a couple of weeks ago. How effective do you believe the Fed has been thus far with combating inflationary impacts across the economy? And also in consideration of the Q2 GDP print we just received, what do you think is on the mind of the Fed at the moment? Where do they go from here as far as monetary policy? Yeah, so I, I don't think the Fed's been effective in fighting inflation to date because they've just started. Uh, and when I say they just started, we know monetary policy operates with a lag, whether that's a couple of quarters or, or three quarters is to be debated. But we know that it takes some time. So um, they weren't very good at combating inflation because they thought it was transitory. And then by the time they had the signal to the market, it took them time to get around to that. So. Um, I think you know, we all agree, especially with the benefit of hindsight, the Fed was too accommodative for too long. They bought too many bonds, too much quantitative easing, and the like. Okay, so with all of that, I think the Fed's done a relatively good job to date of getting us to what Jay Powell says around neutral. And so no, no one knows what the neutral rate of rates is. And, you know, there's, there's the natural rate of unemployment we don't know. There's, there's these wonky economic concepts we talk about. But the Fed has, hasn't really crushed the economy to date to get us back to this, this path we've seen. And remember, to get to two and a quarter, previously it took nine quarters of hiking rates. Well, actually the first hike, there was a, there was a year off in between them. So it took, uh, it took a little bit longer than that. But uh, once they started hiking, you know, it took them a while to get to this level. And remember, by the time they got to this level last year, it was about where they had to start cutting as there were some signs of weakness in the economy. So uh, to that point, the Fed actually did somewhat engineer a soft landing in 2019. Uh, obviously, we don't know how it all plays out because the pandemic rocked us in March of 2020, but they were able to kind of keep things well-contained over that period. Um, now, um, where, where they're at today, you know, the reason that I think Jay Powell abandoned this forward guidance uh, type of behavior and not saying definitively what they're going to do is that you know, he's, he's admitting that they feel that they're around neutral. He also says that, you know, we need to go above neutral uh, to combat this inflationary environment, which I agree with. Um, you know, so the market interpreted this last, um, this last Fed meeting as dovish, that, you know, they may back off significantly. I, I don't think they back off that significantly. I think 50 is practically a done deal. And I think there is the potential for one more 75 rate hike because the inflation data is likely to continue to print around the year-over-year numbers that we've seen. And that's because we have small base effects rolling off both in the next two prints. They were very low prints uh, one year ago. Um, and, you know, again, absent some, like, significant more deterioration in the commodity complex, it's really hard to see how, you know, inflation doesn't print year-over-year at a high eight handle. So I think that that's where the Fed is going to struggle because – you're going to see a very, very high year-over-year inflation number still, and they're going to be, you know, their credibility be called out if they only did like something like a 25. So 
The market has 50 price in. It's a little more than 50 at this point, um, but the market is not set on the 75, which we were seeing, let's say, a month ago or so. Now, all that being said is that I think the Fed still has a few hikes left this year. Uh, they may pause at one point, but it's going to be a function of that inflation data. What, what could start to get them to really slow down is if the month-over-month numbers on a three- and four-month basis are starting to annualize out to a rate that's much more tolerable, say like a low 4% or so, that gets us on that path back down to 2%. So I think the Fed is going to be challenged uh, to not continue to hike into this. And I just think that the terminal rate or where they get to is probably a lot closer to 4% than what the market was starting to think uh, all of a sudden that we're really only getting these about three and a quarter. So uh, probably 375 to four is probably where they ultimately get. But if you notice what happened um, this week is that, as, you know, with given all the dovish behavior in the market, uh, the rallies we saw and not just rates and credit spreads and equities, all of a sudden it got the Fed's attention. And you got you started to see governors come out uh, like a Bullard, who, who's typically very hawkish. But you also got someone like Mary Daly for the San Francisco Fed that doesn't give a lot of commentary. She doesn't seem to get out there. But she's the one that kind of rattled the, the rates market in the last couple of days. And so, you know, they are inflation fighters. Uh, I did see a comment. Uh, I, I saw a headline on the TV uh, a little bit before we jumped on here that said, uh, I, I think it was uh, Mester, where she was saying that, you know, we need to go above 4%. I think what that is, is the, the you're having these governors start to jawbone this because what the Fed does not want at this point with the inflation cycle is the market making things more accommodative. So the Fed is inherently tightening with their interest rate hikes. They have quantitative tightening, they're tightening. But if the bond market thinks the Fed's going to recant soon and starts to price that in, all of a sudden it eases financial conditions. So it flies in the face of their objective. So I think that's why you see the Fed governors coming out and making these comments this week is to try to get this market to be a little bit tighter. And so You've seen this in, in, you know, rates markets. It's been in credit spreads all week uh, where they've they really rallied over the course of the last week, which is easing financial conditions a little bit. So uh, I think we end this year, I, I think you're probably uh, 100 or so higher. You're probably somewhere, you know, the, the high end of the range, 325 or 350 at the end of this year. And I think that's probably close to the end of the hiking regime, assuming that the inflation data plays out like most of us think where it starts to really kind of roll down and, and get through it. But I'm just not convinced over the next, what is it, uh, it, it's a little under seven weeks or six weeks before, we, or seven weeks before we have the next Fed meeting. I'm just not convinced that that data is going to go in the direction that they're looking for. Well, which after you did for me, uh, and I would kind of echo much of what you said regarding the Fed. Uh, first, one point, um, just, you know, you mentioned how the Fed, in some ways, was able to engineer a soft landing in 2019. Like they had a rate hiking cycle, they dialed back. When I see people do analysis of, of successful Fed endeavors, that one is never brought up. So I don't think they kind of credit for that one. So I just didn't want to acknowledge that point. I think in terms of what the Fed is going to do the rest of this year, you know, 15 September is, is the most likely outcome, and then probably two more, say 25, 100 basis points in total. So that would get the Fed close to to three and a half percent. Beyond that, it really just becomes, I think, dependent on, on the data, which is what they've said. They may have to go to 4%. 
I'm not sure if it's going to be necessary for them to go much more than uh, 4%, because I think we're seeing some of the inflation data. If we look 12 months down the line, it's going to be coming down enough for them to feel like we can list a pause at that point in time. Just thinking about the market reaction and the commentary after the Fed last week, I was a little... I don't know, surprised that people sort of immediately reacted like this is a dovish, you know, kind of pivot or, or, you know, kind of change. You know, the fact that the Fed acknowledged that the data has gotten a little bit worse, I mean, that sort of seems like a factual statement. Now that they've done the easy part of the hiking cycle, get to neutral, it gets harder from here. So almost kind of acknowledge that seems, again, sort of intellectually a reasonable approach. I would think, you know, as an investor, if ultimately what's going to drive the Fed is how does the data play out? How does inflation evolve? What we knew from, say, last Monday of last week before the Fed meeting versus the following Friday, things really on the economic front didn't change enough for, for at least our views to change. And therefore, I think the Fed's views wouldn't change. So for the market to believe the Fed certainly went dovish, that seemed to be a bit of an overreaction. And now the Fed speakers, as, as Jeff mentioned, have kind of come out this week to kind of push back on the narrative because – Look, as inflation is still too high, ultimately the Fed has to keep going down this hawkish path of raising rates, tightening financial conditions to slow growth to blend inflation down. So I think as long as that's the case, the Fed kind of keeps going. But you know, each step, I think, beyond you know the last 75 basis point I, becomes more measured because they want to see how things will play out. But I think for the market, right. this remains in a headwind going forward. Yeah, and on that point, too, you know, and that, that's maybe where we get the 50 50- you know, it's not just the inflation. Watch the non-farm payrolls. You get two payroll reports between now and then, too. If you see some slowing in the hiring and, and that, that part of, you know, the, the non-farm payroll is not growing as much as expected, um, that could also provide some farther say it's working, right, the process they're doing. So I, I think you're right on that, too. I think that, you know, even if they continue to be hawkish, I think they're going to start to go in 25 when they do it. I think, you know, probably the arrow that 75 is over. Maybe there's one more. I'm with you on, on the 50, but I'm just concerned that if we get good economic data over the next six weeks or so, you could easily see the Fed throwing in that 75 and just saying, look, we want to do one more big one that will set expectations. Like, look, we're data dependent, you know, but probably the path from there would be 25. So whether it's a 50, 50 and 25 or, you know, slower backing off and, and hitting 25 as you need to, um, I think we get there. And, you know, the market doesn't care if it's 75 and a 25 or it's a 50-50. Yeah, the euro-dollar curve cares a little bit. But ultimately, it doesn't change the pricing mechanism uh, across most markets. And so I, I think that's really what's going to drive it. it. They are data dependent, as they should be, right? Yeah, as you said, the easy part's uh, done. They got to neutral. It gets significantly more difficult when you think you're being highly restrictive, which I think is what the Fed was trying to communicate with us last week. So I know we have just a few moments remaining. Do you want to dedicate that time to hearing your views when it comes to asset allocation? And uh, Jason, what we'll do, we'll give our guest Jeffrey Sherman the final word. So Jason, I'll ask you, given the economic, the market expectations you have laid out for us, which do entail degrees of uncertainty as well as likely volatility in the months to come, what should investors, Jason, be doing right now to prepare and protect their portfolios? Well, we spend a lot of time talking about economics. You know, what matters is obviously what's going on in the markets and also what the markets are pricing. So we think about what's happened over the past roughly month. We've seen risk assets, equities go higher, credit spreads have tightened, commodities have bounced back. It's been sort of a risk-on rally in the face of economic data getting worse. And so we've been in an environment where Broadly speaking, it's sort of, uh, you, know, um, you know, bad news is good news for the markets because bad economic data means the Fed is going to be, you know, more dovish, hike less, and that's good for risk assets. I think that was the mindset of a lot of investors going into last week. Uh, and so 
you know, be kind of out of confirmation bias. So that's the environment we're in there now. But, you know, Jeff made a good point that like, good economic data, strong labor market data in some way is actually bad because that means that Fed has to go more aggressively. So I think very easily we could tip into something where now good data becomes bad news for the markets, in which case some of the performance we've seen over the past month could certainly easily be reversed, which is why when we look at the, you know, the past month, you know, this looks much more like a bear market rally than it is a start of a new sustained bull market. And that's the context for thinking about asset allocation is that this regime we're in where the Fed is really kind of drawing a slow economy, bring inflation down, keep financial conditions tight, that just makes it difficult to get any kind of sustained performance. Um, at the same time, given what we've discussed in terms of, you know, a good still a good chance of a soft landing or, or worse, a mild recession means I think to be outright bearish at, these, at this point in time is difficult as well. So we're advising not to take big directional bets one way and another in sort of, you know, your portfolios, whether it's on rates or, or equities, you know, as a result. Uh, what you want to have is some things that would be you know, benefit from, you know, upside if things end up having a soft landing, but also kind of acknowledge that there is downside. Uh, so on the upside, you know, we have a, a tilt with an equities to value stocks uh, because we think in an environment where growth holds up okay and inflation stays you know, up above normal levels, that typically is a good environment for growth stocks um, and lean them in that direction. Commodities sort of a similar story. The you know, supply-demand story is still very favorable for prices going higher. If the global economy goes into recession, prices come down, but otherwise direction of travel for commodities is probably to the upside. So again, that's something we like. On the fixed income side, kind of a broad theme has been kind of up in quality, uh, you know, especially where kind of rates are. We think they'll probably drift a little bit higher, but like if again, a recession comes in, then you want to have some sort of longer duration protection in your portfolio. Two weeks ago, it wasn't that long ago, like credit spreads started to look quite attractive with high yield spreads at 650 basis points. Now they're less than 500. The risk rewards certainly looks less attractive today than it did before. So within credit, it kind of thinking, kind of go up in quality. You can get yield now without taking a lot of credit risk. And that's the better way to sort of you know, approach uh, the fixed income portfolios is don't reach yet because um, there's probably more pain to come, especially after very recent moves across the credit spectrum. So those are some of the big picture themes that we're thinking about from a portfolio construction perspective. Jeff. Final word over to you. Same question. What are your thoughts when it comes to asset allocation in the current environment and being mindful of what the months ahead might have in store? I like a lot of what Jason recommended. Um, what I would say is another way, if you own stocks right now and you're comfortable with that allocation, one way to kind of play some of this is selling calls against it. Um, I, you know, the vol, the vol environment is there. It's not as rich as it had been. Vols are higher in other parts of the market than necessarily the, the equity market when it comes to the options side. But, you know, just a simple call override strategy looks kind of attractive as a way of playing, of continuing to have some of that equity exposure. Um, however, you know, I agree that there is the potential for downside and slowdown. Uh, the earnings probably do readjust a little bit. So you have to ask yourself, do we, do we get multiple compression on that or does the multiple stay uh, or elevate a little bit to keep prices roughly they are? So, uh, I think it is a bear market rally, uh, as Jason mentioned as well. And I'm, I'm cautious on stocks, especially some of these tech stocks after this run. Uh, but remember, a lot of these things got beaten up pretty bad. So, um, again, I, I don't think it's priced for the slowdown the equity market is. And I think you just it's run to a buzzsaw at like 4,200. It's been that resistance point for a while. Um, and it sure looks like it, you know, we're, we're struggling to get there again. So one way of kind of keeping that exposure and adding some income to it is that call over right. Um, on the fixed income side, um, what we've been doing in our portfolios all year is kind of up in quality. Um, you know, right now I, I'm, I'm inclined to kind of 
keep risk on in the fixed income portfolios today, given the carry, given how uh, most of these markets are priced. Uh, the bulk of the credit markets in the U.S. are priced for the slowdown. Uh, I think the high yield market no longer is after this rally. I think we're like seven and a half, eight percent off the lows. Um, you know, uh, again, it got clobbered in, in June, had a strong rally in July, and at this point, you know, we're kind of fading a little bit of high yield. There's been a lot of strength in that market. There's a lot of demand right now, and so we've used that to kind of lighten up a little bit of exposure there. Uh, when I look across the other credit markets, such as Securitize. Um, they, they haven't had the catch-up that the other markets uh, have had. So we're playing this rally. We're playing momentum still in those markets uh, with the thought of potentially lightening up if we get a similar rally that we've seen in these other assets. Um, the one area uh, that's still – there's two areas that are still priced for bad things to happen. One of those is emerging markets. Um, emerging market spreads in the blow investment grade uh, arena got to over 1,000 uh, in July. Uh, they rallied the last few days and got right inside of the thousand. Uh, they're they're in the low 900s today, but that's a market that's still priced for some bad things to come, and rightfully so. So what I like to say to people is, with that kind of yield, uh, if you're a risk taker, you, you can make some price mistakes because uh, you have so much carry in there. When you're carrying in the double digits, uh, again, it's not something for a high allocation. But if you think that the scenario is one where the Fed backs off and we don't have this slowdown. Uh, the EM markets do look really cheap. Uh, we have not been adding to those positions in full disclosure, uh, but again, in risky portfolios, we own that stuff, uh, and we do we do like it for those that are very risk-seeking uh, with fixed income. Lastly, there is one market that's still priced uh, pretty much for the recession, uh, and that is like single asset, single bar CMBS. You know, hard hard to do without a manager, but some of those within things like office, um, the office sector of that, um, you know, you're talking about AAA rated assets that, you know, yes, the loans are a few years out. Um, you can go out there and buy these things and the AAAs have like a 325 to 350 spread on it. So um, there's not many other parts of the market that offer that kind of protection as well as that kind of yield out there. And again, you have a lot of structural subordination and you have a relatively decent loan to value, even with some bad things happening in that market. So there are interesting ideas. Even, you know, I, I know one that's been popular in the ETF side, the AAA CLO market. Um, you know, uh, our guys are buying stuff today, 250 discount margin plus the floating rate coupon component. I mean, you're talking about five yields today uh, with the potential of Fed resets that they go up a little bit, assuming no spread compression. So, uh, and these are things that, you know, we think are, you know, truly, truly, truly AAA that have very limited chance of default. So, if you listen to what I'm saying there, wrapping it all together, you have, there's some decent things out in the credit market. I think you should let it run for a little bit. Um, so many things haven't caught up in pricing. But by the way, we still have a significant piece of the portfolio in the risk-off asset, in the treasuries, in the agency mortgage market. The agency mortgage market is one of the cheaper levels it's been in many years on an OAS. Uh, it offers comparable. In fact, it's uh, after the risk rally, um, it offers uh, a little more spread. Uh, for its relative duration than the investment in corporate bond market. So that's the government, you know, backed asset that allows you to do that. So, um, you know, if, if we got some of this risk that I'm talking about, I probably want to do a little rotation to more of that trade. As Jason said, going out there and taking kind of more risk-free assets or, or the things that are more duration-related uh, that you don't have to pay the credit risk, you can get paid for. And I think if the Fed gets to this higher end of the range, that's when you want to start buying the short end of the curve uh, to protect against that. But 
I do see rates pushing up because I think the front end pushes up. Two's 10 spread, you know, historically hasn't really got, you know, much wider than negative 50 basis points. Um, and I think that's probably a similar case today. Uh, maybe it's a little bit wider, but um, under that scenario of rates getting pushed to close to four, two-year price trades closer to 375, which on that inverted curve means 10 is about 325. So uh, in general, I, I think that's kind of the direction we push. So I'm going to ride credit. If, if credit's working and rates push up, probably want to do a little rotation. But as always, we'll let the data drive us. So thanks again, gentlemen, for inviting me today. I had a great time. You know, this, this is our wheelhouse. We love to talk about. So hopefully your advisors and clients found it useful. Jeffrey Sherman, Jason Dreho, always a pleasure, always a fascinating discussion. I know we could keep going, though that only means at some point we need to circle back with our conversation. A lot will take shape in the months ahead, so we can definitely follow up. Though very productive, you left our advisors, our clients, our listeners with a lot to consider and take away. So Jeffrey, Jason, thank you for joining us on How Should I Be Positioned? Take care, guys. Thank you, Jeff. We'll talk soon. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.